This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming out. Um, the focus of this discussion is going to be how um, we as a community and as a society can come up with a sort of scientific research agenda in order to empower clinicians, um, to support public health initiatives, and ultimately to inform public policy to mitigate the effects of gun violence on our societies. So in um, preparing for this, you know, I'm thinking we're going to talk about firearms, we're going to talk about violence, and these are very broad topics. And it's actually quite difficult to distill that down into a short discussion. Um, And so I kind of struggled with uh, the scope of of what we should talk about tonight um, and and to cover all the relevant topics yet dive into them into enough depth so that we've addressed them in a nice and, and nuanced way. Um, This is my outline for this discussion. I figured we would touch on four separate points. First, I wanted to talk a little bit about the scope of firearms violence generally. Um, You know, what is the the epidemic that's occurring in, in America? And secondarily, why is medicine and public health, why are they slow to respond? Why are we, um, as a profession, not more engaged in this, in this issue? Um, after all, what we'll see is that uh, violence really is a health and medical issue, yet for some reason we are um, not particularly good at addressing it in the healthcare realm. Um, we'll also touch a little bit about um, firearm violence specifically within the medical context. What does that really look like? What do we actually know about firearm violence in, in medicine, and what don't we know? Um, and then finally, we'll go through what I think is a little roadmap for how we can build an agenda to empower physicians to start addressing this issue. So at the outset, let's start with just some basic background and some basic um, scoping of the public health issue. I like this graph because it tells you a lot about the problem. Let's just start with looking at the red graph, the red bars um, in this graph. And those are deaths, those are casualties broken down by type of um, type of death, homicide versus suicide, accidental, and then police shootings. And immediately what you can see is that the overwhelming number of deaths that occur at the hand of gun at the hands of guns are in suicides. Um, homicides make up a significant number as well. Generally in the United States we're talking about 11 to 12,000 homicides per year, and somewhere a little over 20,000 suicides per year. But then we can turn and look at the orange lines, and what we see is that the, there's a significant uh, number of assaults that occur by guns and a significant number of accidental injuries that occur by guns that don't result in death. And these actually are the ones that cause pretty significant um, disability and um, anguish for, for our patients and for society and actually contribute to cost. Um, the other thing that's very telling is if you look at the ratio of, the, of, the, of this yellow bar to the red bar for suicides, you find that suicide attempt by gun is extremely effective. And we'll come back and talk a little bit more about that. 
Here's another graph that basically shows you the same thing, right? These are, homic- these are, these are gun deaths, and we see that homicides make up generally about one-third, suicides about two-thirds, and that holds stable year after year in the United States. But you can't really have this discussion unless you have a little bit of a discussion at least about race, because there is a sort of differential effect of guns on our society depending on your race and also your gender. So what we see is that black men tend to bear the brunt of gun violence way more than any other population. Um, White men come in next, and women, though lower, um, represent some of, of the burden here. And we can flip that and look at it by race and then by type of uh, death. And what we see here is that this tells us how the black men and the white men are dying differently, right? Black men are dying as a result of homicide overwhelmingly. White men are dying as a result of suicide. You've all probably seen some variation of this slide before. What we're looking at here is gun homicides per 100,000 in various developing countries or developed uh, countries. And we are by far and away number one. Um, If you look at homicides, not gun homicides, but homicides generally, and you include all countries, we're not the worst. Um, El Salvador and Colombia seem to be the worst. But if we're talking about guns um, and we're talking about industrialized nations, we are the clear winner. Let's put this into perspective of another public health crisis. Um, Motor vehicle accidents used to be a huge problem in this country. Um, This graph goes back to 1979, and the blue line represents traffic fatalities. We see a pretty steep decline over time. And the reason for that is uh, pretty clear. Cars have gotten safer. In the late 60s, we passed laws to mandate that cars needed to have safety belts. And then at some point, we um, introduced airbags. And the cars just got safer and safer and safer, and fatalities went down. We've done a pretty good job when it comes to traffic fatalities. Guns, on the other hand, have remained fairly stagnant. There was definitely a spike in the early 90s. We're picking back up a little bit. And for the first time, the lines are crossing. Guns cause more death than traffic fatalities. So let's turn our attention a little bit and say, well, who is responsible for gun violence? Who who is going to tackle this problem? Does it belong to the public policy realm and politicians? Does it belong in the criminal justice or sociology? Is it a public health issue, or is it something that medicine should tackle? Well, there's a long history of public health and medicine coming together to tackle societal problems, right? Infectious diseases were, were, were treated largely, um, were, that were killing large populations of, large amounts of the population were treated through vaccinations. Um, cardiovascular deaths have been dramatically decreased through public health campaigns. We've decreased the amounts of poisonings and overdoses. We've improved nutrition, as we talked about motor vehicle safety, um, and decreased tobacco use, which has resulted in tremendous lives saved. So we'll divert for just a second here and talk about tobacco because I think that it is a perfect example of where the gun violence research agenda needs to go. This is a study from 1950. Um, It's in the British Medical Journal. It's a landmark case control study that was done that first sort of showed the link between smoking and lung cancer, right? And so what happened on the heels of this article, right? 
um, there were generations um, of follow-up studies that were done, and the data got better and better and better. A causal link between smoking and lung cancer was proven. In fact, a causal link between smoking and other diseases was was proven. Um, and there was a concerted effort by the medical community to try and make this our issue, right? We learned how to counsel patients. Um, we went even a step further. We mandated that, that uh, patients who are smokers should get some intervention by their, by their physicians. You can get reimbursed as a physician if you counsel your patient on smoking. Um, it's not to say that physicians did the whole work, right? There were, you know, ad campaigns that were highly successful. There were public policy initiatives that were highly successful. But physicians did their job. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I think if you have a physician sitting at the bedside with a patient who's at risk, counseling them, that goes a long way. So if we go to gun violence research, in the early 90s, in 1993, Art Kellerman published this paper in the New England Journal. And it's actually eerily similar to the smoking article that I put up. It's a case control study that looked at a population of people in the inner city and said, if you have a gun in the home, what is the risk of you being injured and killed by that gun? And sure enough, it turns out that the risk to having a gun in the home is higher than if you don't have a gun in the home, the risk of, of being killed by it. And so on the heels of this article, what happened? Did we have the same analogous movement? Well, no. 1996 came around. It was a um, historic year for, for many reasons. We had a second Clinton administration that, was, that uh, won the White House. Um, the Bulls won the uh, championship. Michael Jordan was still on the team. Um, what else happened that year? A lot of great things happened that year. Oh, the Unabomber was, was caught in 1996. Um, but also, um, this man, Jay Dickey, introduced um, a piece of legislation. Right? He's a Republican congressman from Arkansas, and he introduced what came to be known as the Dickey Amendment. So in 1996, when Congress was putting together the budget for 1997, um, he inserts in there some language that basically says that none of the funds made available for injury prevention and control at the CDC can be used to advocate or promote gun control. This is in direct response to the Kellerman article because the NRA and the pro-gun lobby lobbied very aggressively at Congress and got this stuck into that bill. What's happened since then is that there has been zero funding to the CDC to study gun violence. In fact, Congress has doubled down on this. The NIH provides zero money to study this, this topic. Year after year, um, the budget comes up, and there's zero money to, to do this. Um, funding agencies are afraid to put money towards gun violence because they're worried that they'll have their entire budgets slashed. In the, on the heels of the Newtown massacre, President Obama um, enacted um, uh, executive orders to order Congress to begin funding gun violence research. Um, and even though on the face of it that order is there, no money has been appropriated to um, NIH grants. So what was the effect of, of the Dickey Amendment? Well, it was extremely effective for what it wanted to do. What we see in this uh, dotted red line is the number of academic publications over time. We're starting here in the 60s, here's 2010, we've got a ton of academic publications. This is the number of journal articles um, covering guns, right? So we see a steep increase, and in the 90s, we sort of hit our peak. 
the Dickey Amendment goes into effect, and there's a steep drop-off. So we don't have the research the way that we need to figure out what the actual effect of guns are on society and our, and our patients. So let's pause here for a second. Let's talk, let's review a little bit the scope of the problem. Guns result in 30,000 deaths, 70,000 injuries each year. Public policy is outdated. It's uh, not consistent with what society needs or wants. And the special interests from the gun lobby have really been successful um, in blocking the most basic research on, on gun violence. And as a result, what we're finding is that physicians don't really know how to engage their patients and treat their patients who are at risk of gun violence. So if we were to take, that step, take it a step further and say, well, then how do we reverse this? What do physicians actually need to know? How can we inform physicians to become advocates in this, in this fight? As I see it, there's sort of four major questions. Well, there's a lot of questions, but these are the, the main four that I think um, bear a lot of attention. Number one is, as a physician, I want to know who's at risk and who should I be screening for gun injuries or um, to, for, for who's at risk of getting injured by a gun. And how should that screening be done? And if I am able to successfully screen, which is no small task, what do I do with that information? Do I, as a physician, have enough competency to actually engage my patients in a way that will resonate with them? Can I speak to them about gun safety, about gun locks, about, um, about safe storage? Can I counsel them on you know, suicide in an effective way that will prevent them from using their guns against themselves? Are there interventions within healthcare that we can come up with to help physicians in that, in that work. And finally, are there legal considerations or implications of screening and intervening? And we'll come back and talk about that a little bit later as well. So if we're going to shift towards talking about gun violence in the healthcare context, um, we need to kind of understand the scope of violence more generally. This is according to the CDC, these, these top seven bolded um, forms of violence are recognized by the CDC as um, discrete entities uh, that um, uh, violence forms. And there's a few other ones that I've added here, like uh, police violence or legal intervention, um, workplace violence, mass violence, that are, that are talked about um, not infrequently. But if we talk about guns and not violence more generally, but we talk about gun violence, um, I think there's a uh, smaller and slightly different subset of ecologies that we need to talk about. That's intimate partner violence or domestic violence, suicide, mass violence, accidental injuries, youth violence, which includes things like criminal activities, gang violence, peer-to-peer violence. And then I think it's worth talking a little bit about legal intervention and police violence. So if these represent on the left here the kinds of patients that may um, come to a physician, um, these are the sort of healthcare encounters or realms of the healthcare delivery that physicians need to actually be empowered um, to, to work on, right? So we need to be able to treat patients who are injured by, by guns. We need to be able to care for their mental health and their psychological state. We need to be able to screen them and assess their risk. We need to have primary prevention, meaning we prevent them from ever getting injured in the first place. And if they are injured, we need secondary prevention, meaning we need to stop them from being re-injured. So with this framework, 
um, I think it's uh, worth kind of transforming this and putting it into like a little bit of a matrix, right? This is the way I see the entire breadth of gun violence and the healthcare system, right? On the columns, we have each of those ecologies, the different types of um, presentations that may, may come to healthcare. And in the rows, we have the different jobs and the different roles that physicians have to uh, be prepared to address. And so within any one of these cells, there's a lot of work to be done. We need to be able to inform physicians. We need to be able to provide them with the tools to engage their patients. And we need to be able to um, improve outcomes for their patients. I will say that for some of these cells, we, we actually know something, right? Um, but for a lot of the other ones, we don't. So for example, for medical management, we're actually pretty good at managing injuries, right? If somebody is shot, I actually know what to do for that. That's relatively easy in the grand scheme of things. But then let's think about, for example, um, let's take mass violence, right? All the way down, down the row here. I don't really know very much. I don't really know how to you know, screen somebody who's at risk of perpetrating mass violence. I don't know how to prevent it. Um, similarly, um, you know, if we talk about, let's say, um, youth violence, right? Um, this is, you know, let's say gang violence, somebody gets injured. I don't really know how to treat somebody's mental health if they've been injured, right? That person's going to suffer some PTSD. They live in a very, potentially live in a very difficult and uh, challenging um, environment and neighborhood. And they're going to suffer a fair amount of mental health complications, but I'm not really very well equipped for intervening in that in that person's life. Once they are injured, I think uh, we're decent at secondary prevention, certainly not perfect, but we have hospital-based violence intervention programs. Um, but, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, all of that is to say that, you know, this is a very heterogeneous topic. There are a lot of nuances, and we are certainly not equipped to handle every situation yet. Let's talk about two very specific examples where we actually tend to know a little bit more. Um, and I think they can sort of hopefully give you a flavor of how physicians um, do or should be thinking about, about gun violence. So let's talk about intimate partner violence and with respect to uh, risk assessment, screening, primary and secondary prevention. And I'll give you this hypothetical but all too real case of a 28-year-old woman who presents to prenatal clinic um, in her first trimester, right? She's there for general prenatal care. And through the course of regular screening, as OBGYNs do, it turns out that she actually is um, having some trouble at home. Um, her fiancé has really been kind of a, an abuser of some sorts throughout the length of their relationship, and they have another child at home. And it turns out that during this pregnancy, he's become increasingly aggressive towards her. He's threatened her uh, more and more, and it's now resulted in him having pushed her. Um, he choked her, and he threatened her with a gun, right? This actually is not an uncommon phenomenon. We see this not infrequently. So what do we know about intimate partner violence and guns? Well, it turns out that intimate partner violence definitely escalates during pregnancy, um, and we actually do have a tool, it's called the danger assessment, and there are multiple tools, but this is one that's been around since the 1980s, that really 
um, allows us as physicians to risk stratify patients who are at risk for domestic violence. And it turns out that if you are threatened with um, a weapon, that is the single best predictor of whether or not you will die. Right? If, if a woman is threatened with a weapon or a weapon has been used against her, she has a 20-fold increase in death. Being threatened just generally, threatened to, uh, to, to be killed, is a 15-fold, and the choking in and of itself is a 10-fold increase. Right? So this underscores an area where we actually have decent data, and we have some resources in how to intervene for this woman. So let's go back and talk about a different case, and let's talk about um, suicide. Again, we know a little bit more about suicide than a lot of the other um, ecologies. Let's talk about mental health, um, risk assessment, and primary prevention. 58-year-old gentleman comes in for uh, a regular annual checkup. His wife died a year ago. The anniversary is coming up, and he's been increasingly depressed, right? He actually says he wishes he was dead, too. Again, not an uncommon presentation, He admits to drinking more heavily, and when you ask him directly, he says, yep, I have been feeling suicidal. I've thought about shooting myself with my gun. So what do we know about access to firearms and suicide? It turns out that um, there's this concept of lethal means matter, right? So the lethal means is the way in which somebody says they're going to injure themselves or someone else. And when we're assessing patients who are at risk of suicide, we often ask why, 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 why are you, why do you want to hurt yourself? What we should be asking is how do you want to hurt yourself? Because it turns out that suicide is actually usually a fairly transient uh, phenomenon, right? People feel suicidal for short periods of time. Not, they don't walk around throughout the day feeling suicidal all the time. Um, and it's inherently an impulsive act. Something happens Um, and they decide to act impulsively. And what predicts whether or not somebody dies is whether or not the means that they chose are lethal or not. And so if you give somebody uh, a bottle of pills and they decide to take a bottle of pills, that's unlikely to be fatal, right? Very few overdoses result in completed suicide. It's less than 10%. Um, But when we're talking about guns it's lethal upwards of 90% of the time. And this goes back to that that graph we showed earlier that there's very few people who are just injured and not dead after using guns against themselves. So um, we can talk a little bit more about uh, this towards the end if people have specific questions. But I think this gives us a little bit of a sense of the types of gun violence that physicians must learn to address. We've talked about a couple of cases where we're okay about how we can approach them, but there's still that overall matrix. There's a lot of work to be done. I do want to talk a little bit, if we're, if we're going to um, have this discussion about what physicians should be doing, I think it's, it's worth talking a little bit about the laws that um, may either support or um, hinder physicians from doing that, that work. Um, I put this up here, Tale of Two States, because California and Florida seem to be very divergent on the topic of gun violence. California, fortunately, seems to be going in the right direction. And I have some slides at the very, very end we can talk about if there's time. But I wanna, what I want to talk about is, is Florida, which seems to be going, in my opinion, the wrong direction. Because in 2011, they passed a law that was known as the Firearms Owners Privacy Act, which basically said that physicians can't ask 
patients about access or use or storage of firearms. Um, it was There was an injunction in 2012. That injunction was reversed, and the decision in that reversal in 2014 basically said that the practice of good medicine does not require interrogation about irrelevant private matters. Right? So... Um, this became known as the Docs versus Glocks law. Um, it was opposed by every major medical organization um, on the grounds that it violated uh, free speech of, of the doctors. And, you know, I'm painting a very bleak picture. It's really, it wasn't really as evil as um, I'm making it out to sound. I think that the impetus for this law was that um, gun owners felt that there w- would be a concerted effort by healthcare to create registries or document people's gun behaviors, and then that could be used against them later on. And the actual law said, you know, that healthcare or healthcare practitioners should refrain from making a written inquiry or asking questions concerning ownership of firearm or ammunition. And it goes on to basically suggest that as a matter of routine, physician, physicians shouldn't do that. But that notwithstanding this provision, um, if the doctor in good faith believes that the information is relevant to the patient's medical care or safety or the safety of others, they can make such a verbal or written inquiry. So, you know, there's a lot of wiggle room here. If a patient arrives to you saying, I've got a gun and I'm going to shoot people, well, obviously you can talk to them about their, their access to guns. Um, the question really, the, the gray area is, can a pediatrician ask parents, for example, about um, safe storage at home? Um, you can make the argument that that's as a matter of routine and you shouldn't do that, but you can also make the, the argument that safe storage prevents accidental deaths and that that is, in fact, relevant to that patient's medical care. To my knowledge, no physician has been censored um, based on this law. So we talked about how the entire gun violence agenda has been sort of thwarted for, uh, the research agenda has been thwarted for the last 20 years because of the Dickey Amendment. So how can we make up for the last 20 years? Well, I'm going to propose a sort of research agenda that I think um, could sort of bring us back. Um, Step one is we need data. We need lots of data. We don't have any data. When we talk about um, cardiovascular death, for example, Back in the 40s and 50s, we built these huge registries, um, the Framingham cohort being the most famous one, where we learned everything there was to learn about people's uh, risk factors for cardiovascular disease. We made a lot of um, intelligent uh, conclusions from from that data. Then we need to actually take that data that's going to inform our um, ideas and start doing research, start doing experiments that's very patient-centric. How can we reduce deaths for, for um, individuals and for patients. And once we have the results from that research, we need guidelines. We need to then take those guidelines and implement them within the healthcare system. And we need to ultimately change the standard of care. And I'll give you examples for each of these really quickly. So um, we talked about we need big data. We need registries of gun-injured patients, right? So the healthcare um, infrastructure needs to say, I want to know when somebody is injured by guns, and let's start collecting data about them. Let's figure out what their social situation is like, their financial situation, what other risky behaviors are they engaging in, who are their social networks. 
Um, we need to know what is putting these people in particular risk for being injured. And then similarly, there are other agencies and other services that have data as well. Criminal justice has data. Um, social services has data. And we should all this data should be able to speak with one another because together we can put together a huge, uh, robust data set that might give us some inference about who is, at, is most at risk. Then we need to actually do the research of testing um, interventions, testing approaches to mitigating that, that violence, right? We need to basically translate the knowledge that we have about firearms to the bedside. How can we change individual people's trajectories? We need to test these interventions um, and then use the, the results of these tests and these experiments, the randomized trials, to get these organizations to put out guidelines to tell their constituents, their, the physicians in those specialties, that it's moral imperative for them to begin uh, treating and intervening on their patients' behalf. And once we've done that, now we need to take the best practices and we need to empower physicians to be able to do their job effectively and efficiently. Sometimes that means uh, providing people with decision aids or uh, tools so that they can assess and uh, screen patients more readily. You can even leverage the electronic health record in some instances to do some of that in an automated fashion. And we see this being done with so many other diseases right now in modern healthcare that we should be doing this for guns. And then finally, we need to change the standard of care, right? Um, the standard of care right now with respect to so many public health issues, let's say smoking, for example, is that physicians will, in fact, do something. And there are requirements and incentives for physicians to do things uh, with respect to some of these, these conditions. And we need to make sure those requirements and incentives are there for physicians to engage their patients around firearm safety, about reducing risk. And that, in a very brief nutshell, is my roadmap for how we can bring the research agenda back. But obviously that hinges on being able to do the work. Um, right now, um, there is no funding. And so this is, my, this is the part of the talk where I just sort of get on my soapbox and I make a plea, right? What can you do? You can call your um, senator or your congressperson and ask them to take up this issue. Unfortunately, it seems unlikely that in the next four years this issue will be addressed in any meaningful way. But it doesn't mean that you can't reach out to your city or local officials. Like I said, California is fairly progressive on this topic, so there's something you can do there. At the heart of it, at the end of the day, uh, we as researchers don't have a gun control agenda. All we really want is the truth. I want to get at the bottom line of what is it about guns that harms so many patients? And is there a way we can mitigate that effect? And if the truth turns out that there are some instances where guns are protective, well, then we need to know that as well. But right now, we can't do the research one way or the other. You can donate to philanthropic groups or um, institutions that are doing this work. The grant that I received to do my work is through a, a private foundation because the NIH won't fund it, right? Um, I have colleagues whose interest, for example, is in the opioid epidemic, right? They can apply to the NIH, get funded for years and years, and make an entire career out of that particular uh, realm of inquiry. I can't. 
Um, and then you can stay informed and not ignore the issue. Because I think as a society, we have become a little bit numb to the issue of guns, right? We, we get swept up into it uh, when there's a, an outlier or a particularly a, a, a egregious case that involves guns. We pay attention to it for a short period of time. But that momentum goes away very quickly. Um, and the pro-gun lobby has done a really effective job of maintaining their momentum um, forward and combating any groundswell to counter them. And so what we really need to do is we need to continue the public dialogue so that we can really learn how to curb firearm violence. And so that's the, the end of, of my, uh, the, the initial part of my, of my presentation. So um, I can take some questions, um, and I can also I have a couple of slides um, on the gun violence restraining order. This doesn't have anything necessarily to do with physicians, but it's it's a California law that I'm not sure if you're familiar with. I'll, I'll briefly introduce it. It was passed in 2014, and it became effective this year. Effectively, this is a law um, signed by um, by Governor Brown that um, allows family members and law enforcement to impose a gun violence restraining order against an individual who is at immediate and present danger of causing personal injury to himself, herself, or um, another by basically um, forcing them to surrender their firearms for 21 days. They can petition to go in front of a judge and get those firearms back, um, but at least it allows for this cooling off uh, Period. This was in response to the Isla Vista shooting that occurred down um, near Santa Barbara. This law was uh, was passed. Um, so I think it's important that you know we as Californians be um, be aware of this. Should uh, you know you encounter a situation in which uh, something like this could be could be uh, um, life saving for for someone. And then um, Prop sixty three just passed. Um, so if you all voted, I hope you. You, you voted the right way, um, that uh, outlaws the possession of ammunition magazines that hold more than 10 rounds and allows, um, allow, requires background checks for ammunition pur purchases. So those are the, sort of the two California-centric uh, laws that I wanted to point out um, to show the distinction between what Florida is trying to do and uh, what California is trying to do. So with that, I'll take some questions. Yes. Um, what research has there been or any um, on um, systems for uh, protecting workers who are, I mean, there are statistics about where are the most dangerous places in terms of being a victim of gun violence, fast food, 24-hour emergency rooms, mm -hmm. um, and, and what has there been in terms of how to, how to protect the people who are in those workplaces? So the question is, um, has there been research in workplace violence and how to protect individuals who are at risk of, of violence in the workplace? I'm not aware of very much research. I, I, I think there is um, research that I'm not particularly familiar with about uh, workplace violence more generally, um, but not with respect to firearms as far as I know. Um, unfortunately, that tends to fall in, into the category of mass violence, which we know very little about, right? We, we effectively just have case reports. You know, when one occurs, we know something about that, that one discrete episode of, of mass violence, but we haven't been able to sort of say, 
what were the common themes um, of of all these incidents, and can we find you know the the one thread that that ties them all together and intervene there? So uh, maybe that doesn't fully answer your question, but I don't have a good answer either. So the question is, um, having a, a medical degree and a public health master's degree, you know, how do they um, interplay with one another? I think that um, any good research uh, is based in, at least clinical research is based in some of the experiences that you have practicing medicine, and that really informs the kind of research that you want to do and answer the questions that you have for your clinical practice. The, the public health degree gives you the tools to do the, to do the science, right? So it allows you to do the science in a, in a um, consistent and robust and, and uh, fair way, um, but the question that's being answered is really born out of your clinical practice, at least for me. Yes? interesting to do some research about culture, especially culture as it affects young people that is so violent, like their um, video games mm-hmm. and just television. I mean, I watch people get murdered on TV every single night. There's shows that are just about murders. So, and right. how that affects the um, acceptance of gun violence. Right. And also the fear that, oh, I might be hurt, so I better have a gun to protect myself. Right. So there's, um, so let me rephrase that, that there's a culture of violence that may affect children and um, perpetuate the cycle of gun violence, and that uh, there's a sense that you need to have a gun in order to protect yourself because we have effectively scared um, and primed our our population to to feel a certain way. Um, I think for a while it was, it was, fashionable to sort of say, oh, it's all about video games, it's all about television, and that's what's causing this. Um, I mean, if we go back 15 years, it was all about rap music, and that was the, the, the issue. I'm not discounting those things as important factors. To my knowledge, they haven't fully been borne out in a systematic way to... Um, to, to suggest that people will be more at risk of perpetuating violence. That being said, there have been instances, the Columbine shooters, for example, um, and, and a lot of people who have mental health um, problems at baseline may be inspired by some of the, the, the cultural things that they see. The area that, that concerns me the most is that we know that there is a biology in early childhood development that... Um, actually restructures the way the brain works and thinks. Um, We know that exposure to violence, real violence, um, absolutely primes people to have poorer health, to have psychological problems, and to ultimately be more likely to end up in the criminal justice system. And so um, there's probably something there, um, and I think we're starting to understand the biological developmental underpinnings of that. I'm not convinced 100% that it's it's just television or video games, though those are seemingly important. I think it's that plus the overall environment that, that children live in that might affect their later um, uh, likelihood to become become violent. Yeah. 
We'll do one last question. Um, I was curious about the prevalence incidents in rural areas versus urban areas because you know, the population is greater in an urban area, but there also is a lot of gun possession ownership. So there's not been a lot of great research on on that. There's the all the research is uh, very like ecological, right? So we're we're just looking at these sort of broad cross sections, and all we can show are these sort of vague associations, um, without being able to say what is really the effect of being in an urban area versus being in a rural area on on. Um, on becoming a, a victim of violence or perpetrating violence. Um, there's no doubt that um, social networks play a role. Um, and there have been some, again, some ecological studies that have shown that in some urban areas, um, the great majority of gun violence and gun injuries are perpetrated by a very small network of individuals. And so there really seems to be something about being in this environment um, that perpetuates it that doesn't seem to exist in rural areas. Now, both rural and urban areas have a gun culture, and they're very different gun cultures, right? So um, the urban areas have normalized gun ownership because it's seen as a way of self-protection. The rural areas, uh, sorry, let me, let me rephrase that. They see it as, they've normalized it because they feel like they are always imminently at threat and that ownership of a gun will protect them from moment to moment. I think in rural areas, there's much more of a culture of owning guns more generally for a variety of reasons, but there's also uh, this fear that, you know, you will primarily use it for, um, for self for self-protection um, in addition to sporting and all those other, other reasons. Um, I'm happy to take more questions at the very end of the session if anybody has more. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm really excited to share our work on Vision Zero um, with you all today. So with that, um, I'll go ahead and jump into um, Vision Zero San Francisco. So how many people here have uh, heard of Vision Zero? So it looks like about half of the people. So in short, Vision Zero is um, the city of San Francisco's policy to eliminate traffic fatalities by 2024. Um, it's an ambitious goal. Uh, Vision Zero was adopted in 2014, and it's a 10-year goal to eliminate traffic fatalities. Um, as stated here, it's the, the city's policy committing to building better, safer streets, educating uh, the public on traffic safety, enforcing traffic laws, and adopting policy changes that, that save lives. So this is a little um, timeline. It's not exactly linear, but it fits on the slide. Um, of San Francisco's involvement with traffic safety. And San Francisco's been a leader in traffic safety for quite a while, um, dating all the way back to 1973. Um, San Francisco had a transit first policy, which basically acknowledges the, the limited space that San Francisco has um, in terms of public space and prioritizes that space to be used for pedestrians, cyclists, and, and transit to prioritize um, 
decongestion of our streets and to promote health and, and safety of the community. Um, in 2001, San Francisco was the first city to begin using countdown, um, pedestrian countdown signals. And so when you're crossing, you can gauge how much time you have to, to cross the street. And they're not implemented at every traffic signal in San Francisco, but they're definitely um, a huge um, collision reduction uh, factor in a lot of the street design. And they've obviously spread um, throughout the nation. Um, some of the other uh, big events that um, have contributed to traffic safety in San Francisco was um, in 2011, uh, the city adopted, um, or in 2010 actually, the city had a mayoral directive to reduce severe and fatal pedestrian collisions by 50% um, by 2021. And that work um, or that directive led to um, the development of a pedestrian safety task force, um, which, which in part has done a lot of work to inform our Vision Zero efforts as well. Um, and so that with um, the pedestrian safety task force um, funneled a lot of the data gathering that is being used for, for Vision Zero. And as I mentioned, Vision Zero was adopted in um, February of 2014, um, and it was the second city in the United States um, a month behind New York City, which adopted um, the same policy um, in, in 20, January of 2014. So what prompted um, San Francisco to adopt Vision Zero? Um, it was in December of 2013, Sophia Liu and her family were um, crossing the street at um, Polk, uh, Polk and Ellis, or no, Post and Ellis Street, and um, she was with her brother and mother, and she was struck and killed. She was one of six pedestrians killed um, for the month of December, and that's um, where our advocates, our community-based organizations in San Francisco, gathered with city leaders and demanded um, that the city adopt Vision Zero and stop accepting that traffic fatalities are are permissible in the city, that it's a, a price that we're willing to pay for convenience and transportation. And so Vision Zero wasn't um, invented by San Francisco. It's actually um, a philosophy and concept that was um, taken from Sweden. Sweden adopted Vision Zero in the late 90s and has had great success with um, reducing traffic fatalities. Sweden's um, adopted Vision Zero countrywide, and they've seen um, over 50% um, reductions in traffic fatalities. And so it's a concept that's spread in Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and um, it's beginning to hit the United States. There's a Vision Zero network, and so far I think there's about 21 U.S. cities that have adopted Vision Zero, and there's several other cities um, that are interested in um, exploring Vision Zero in their, their town or city. Um, central to Vision Zero is this ethical imperative that these deaths are preventable, and it's, it's not acceptable to have any deaths. Um, having goals of 10 or 20 or, or whatever the, the death number may be um, really violates 
our value to, to human life, and we can't be willing to trade certain societal benefits for human life. And um, Vision Zero also demands that we kind of shift um, our cultural mindset about how we think about transportation. Um, in the United States, it's it's been a slow transition, and even in San Francisco, but um, we tend to to put the responsibility on the individual. And so the individual is responsible for making judgments of crossing the street. But really, um, the safe systems approach, which is central to Vision Zero, is shifting that responsibility from the individual to the designers of our transportation system. So making the city planners and traffic engineers design roads in a way that um, promote safety and make people make the right decisions. And so, um, so when people are navigating roads, um, they can, the decision-making is easy and intuitive, and um, Vision Zero also acknowledges that people make mistakes. So if you accidentally step off the curb, that that human mistake that as humans we're prone to make doesn't result in um, a traffic fatality or a severe injury, that the tra transportation system is designed in such a way that um, it's forgiving, not that we won't have injuries, but they, they won't be injuries that um, are serious or, or fatal. And so I saw this um, editorial recently in Lancet, and uh, just the parallels between Vision Zero and, and what's going on with trauma, and since the theme of this mini medical school series is trauma, um, I thought I'd highlight this. But um, I've seen this public health trend with, with Zero, as I, I discussed earlier, this um, ethical imperative of, of setting aspirational goals, um, like zero traffic fatalities, as um, something that, that we're not willing to, to budge on as a society. And um, I saw that in um, the Lancet, the, the 2016 Clinical Cong Congress announced a commitment to achieving zero preventable deaths from trauma. And um, there are just striking similarities between um, trauma and um, Vision Zero, which traffic injury and fatalities are, are trauma. So. I can see why, why those two have such similarities, but as highlighted in this editorial, um, the trauma network is highly a geographical variable. So your proximity to um, trauma centers um, highly influences your likelihood for survival um, in a traumatic event. And um, there are highly predictive um, metrics with, with our location data that, that predict where injuries will occur in San Francisco. And then also in this editorial, they mention um, the multi-sectorial uh, commitment will be required to achieve um, zero preventable deaths. And that rings true with Vision Zero. Um, although Department of Public Health is really involved with um, the data systems and evaluation part of Vision Zero, we have to rely on our city agencies, our other city partners, and city family. Um, we work closely with the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency um, and the police department who enforce um, traffic laws. 
So this slide summarizes the, the structure of um, how we're implementing Vision Zero in San Francisco. Um, we have a citywide task force that meets on a qu quarterly basis, and it's co-chaired by both um, the Department of Public Health, Megan Weir, who's um, an epidemiologist, my supervisor, and uh, Mari Hunter, who's a, a traffic planner at the uh, San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency. And this group meets on a quarterly basis, and it's open to the public. Um, as you can see, with all the logos um, listed, we have a, a lot of um, partners and community-based um, organizations that attend the meeting. It's usually about 50 or 60 people, and... Um, the way uh, Vision Zero is structured is we, we focus on what we call the, the five E's in P, and sometimes there's six E, but as I mentioned, enforcement, working with the police department is a, is a huge component of achieving Vision Zero. Um, we have a, a campaign called Focus on the Five, and this campaign focuses on um, the top five collision factors associated with the most severe and, and fatal collisions. And that consists of um, focusing, um, issuing citations on those top five dangerous behaviors, which are speeding, running of red lights, running of stop signs, um, pedestrian right-of-way violations, and um, turning violations. Engineering is also a big component in achieving Vision Zero, um, adding safety improvements, um, removing parking, adding um, traffic signals, education campaigns, evaluation and monitoring, which I'll be talking about more in depth, and then policy as well. So um, exploring different local level um, policy that can help advance Vision Zero, and then also um, statewide level policies that, that can um, help save lives. And then engagement um, in advocacy, Part of this citywide task force is really holding the city accountable um, for what they're doing, and it, it gives us an opportunity to report back to our constituents about um, what progress we've made. So this is a map of the Vision Zero High Injury Network, and this is um, one, of, one of the primary um, tools used in implementing Vision Zero, and this is uh, basically the, the result of um, a systematic epidemiological approach to, to looking at data. Um, what's represented in the blue is 12% of San Francisco's surface streets that captures 70% of severe and fatal traffic injuries in San Francisco. Prior to the development of the high injury network, what the MTA would typically do was they produce an annual collision report that would list the top 10 most dangerous intersections in San Francisco, and, and that would be their, their way to prioritize traffic safety improvements in the city. And looking at the data in a systematic way, um, the Department of Public Health was able to create this map. And in a time of um, limited resources, we needed a way to to prioritize our, our resources and projects on on the city streets where it would matter most. And so um, this this approach allows us to focus um, where the projects should be going and really protect um, or prevent the 
the injuries from happening. And then along with um, the high injury network, we also were able to um, identify that um, there's disproportionate impact of traffic injury um, in communities of concern. So communities of concern identified by the San Francisco uh, Transportation Authority, San Francisco County Transportation Authority, um, defines communities of concern as um, communities with high concentrations of um, people living with disabilities, uh, people of color, people living in poverty, uh, people dependent on transit or walking as their main means of transportation. And so in San Francisco, 30% of our surface streets are in communities of concern, but we see that 47% um, of the high injury network is actually in communities of concern. So these vulnerable populations are at a higher risk of um, traffic injury. So this slide summarizes some of the um, some some of the accomplishments we've had so far in 2016. Um, what I'm going to focus on is um, under evaluation and monitoring. Uh, as Sue mentioned, um, the work that that I've been spearheading is a development of a comprehensive surveillance system, looking at um, traffic injuries and fatalities. The need for a comprehensive transportation injury surveillance system. Um, as I, I mentioned, we work with, um, very closely with police. And prior to the adoption of Vision Zero, police reports were the, the gold standard. And largely across the United States and even internationally, that is the gold standard for measuring the burden of traffic injury. Um, but we know through research that's been conducted at UCSF and Zuckerberg San Francisco General that when you only rely on one data source like police reports, um, there's actually, or, or not, the police reports do not capture all of, all of the, the traffic injuries actually occurring in San Francisco. And so um, in a study conducted at San Francisco General Hospital comparing um, trauma registry and hospitalization data to police reports, um, they identified that there's about 21% of uh, pedestrian injuries that go unreported to police. And a study conducted a few years later focusing on cyclists found that there's 27% underreporting of cyclist injuries. And so this, this data gap, um, this, this data gap really needs to be addressed because we're only making traffic safety decisions using police, police reports. And so um, as part of Vision Zero, we prioritized um, updating this transportation um, or developing a surveillance system that captures the true burden of traffic injury. And so this slide kind of summarizes my, my method for identifying different data sources. I don't expect you to be able to read it. But what I essentially did was mapped out what happens and what city agencies are involved in, in responding to um, a traffic injury crash. And so the, the green diamonds represent different potential data sources and um, the primary data sources identified um, through this, this mapping exercise 
obviously we get our um, police reports, which um, which include really important information regarding the circumstances of a crash, um, what sort of violations uh, occurred. There's also um, dispatch data, EMS data, um, and what we identified as, as really a huge missing component is the trauma registry and hospitalization data um, that really is filling that, that data gap of un, unreported injuries in San Francisco. And so in, in combining these data sets, um, I'm using specialized software to probabilistically link these different data sets uh, to each other. So we have victim-level data in, the, in our police um, in our police data set, and we have victim-level data in our hospital uh, data set, and we can use these identifiers and um, prob- probabilistically and almost deterministically um, predict which which are matches, and then um, the ones that don't match, we can uh, um, estimate how how many um, injuries are going unreported. So this slide, um, I like to emphasize um, the different strengths and weaknesses of the the data sets we're utilizing for building the surveillance system. So police data, which is a a really rich data source in terms of providing a lot of detailed information about the specifics of um, the specific details and circumstances of a crash, like what party was at fault, um, what violation um, caused the crash, um, has great great information about location, what lane somebody was in, um, what they were doing prior to the, the crash. Um, but what it lacks is any information on um, the health consequences of, of that traffic crash. There's only one field in our police data that addresses injury severity, and it's Four, four levels of um, injury severity. So it's either fatal, a severe injury, a visible injury, or a complaint of pain. And, and that's the only data we have about injury. And then on the, the other hand, hospital data, which has great um, clinical level data and can tell us a lot about the, the um, diagnoses somebody receives after um, being involved in a crash, has injury severity score, comorbidities, um, whether the patient was um, using um, some sort of mobility device like a cane or walker, um, but it only has one field that addresses the mechanism of injury. So we can find out if the person was a pedestrian or cyclist, but then it doesn't give any detail in terms of where where the crash happened um, or what violations or, or what contributed to the cause of the crash. And so the strength of this surveillance system is combining and linking these two data sets together to, to have this um, really robust data set that we can perform analyses on and um, determine risk factors for certain types of crashes. Um, this, this slide summarizes... Um, the traffic deaths in San Francisco um, dating back to 2005. In San Francisco, we have approximately 30 traffic deaths per year, 
Um, and as you can see, indicated by the blue over half, around 60% of our traffic fatalities um, are pedestrian fatalities. And about half of those pedestrians are our senior citizens. So San Francisco has an aging uh, population, and we see that uh, senior citizens bear um, a higher burden for, for pedestrian traffic fatalities. As part of the surveillance system, uh, we track um, the traffic fatalities, and we post them on our, our Vision Zero website. Um, Prior to the adoption of Vision Zero, as you can imagine, um, there wasn't a coordinated effort for tracking traffic fatalities. So um, the different agencies would actually report out different numbers. The police department would have their number of traffic fatalities. Um, Department of Public Health would have theirs. And the, the MTA, the Municipal Transportation Agency, would have their, their traffic fatality count. And so with the adoption of Vision Zero, it's really allowed us to coordinate between agencies. And we have developed a, a traffic fatality protocol where we meet on a monthly basis. We have a, a very strict case definition of what constitutes as a traffic fatality. We go through medical examiners, um, reports every month, and then um, map map the traffic fatalities um, on the website. This slide is actually from one of um, Sue's presentations, but this summarizes the trends um, across three years in terms of what mechanism of injury people are presenting at Zuckerberg San Francisco General's um, Trauma Center for. And you can see that um, transportation-related injuries are um, the leading cause for visits to um, the trauma center for um, hospitalization and, and trauma activation. And typically, transportation is broken out um, by subcategories, uh, pedestrian versus auto, bike versus auto, maybe motor vehicle versus motor vehicle. But when you um, collapse these all into transportation-related injuries, you can see um, how great the, the burden is on our um, health care system. So this slide um, summarizes the methodology um, being utilized for this um, probabilistic linkage. Um, this, the numbers here represent um, an analysis I did uh, looking at, at severe injuries. So looking at one year of, of trauma registry data and defining severe injuries as those patients requiring one day of hospitalization or greater than one day of hospitalization, we found approximately 515 patients requiring um, hospitalization. Uh, when compared to the police data, which only um, estimated or only had around 200 um, serious injuries per year. And so what this really highlights is the need for um, data with this important health information so we can better um, measure what exactly a severe injury is and not have to rely on police data to, to do... A, a police officer really is just not equipped with um, the education to be evaluating how injured somebody is. And so the, there's a potential for a lot of misclassification um, with um, police-designated injury severity levels. Another um, 
Another key strength of using trauma registry data for um, traffic injury surveillance is um, the ability to, to look at injury by body region. And so part of this severe injury analysis, I was able to look at um, different patterns um, of body injury. You can see for serious and head serious head and neck injuries that cyclists and pedestrians, about 30% suffer serious head and neck injuries, and you can see motorcyclists and motor vehicle occupants um, suffer a lot less. Uh, serious chest injury across all modes um, seems to be around 20%, and um, we can see that pedestrians and motorcyclists suffer higher um, higher proportion of serious extremity injuries. So ultimately, by building this surveillance system, utilizing multiple data sources, um, we're able to increase our capacity to identify traffic injuries in, in the city. And with improved surveillance, we can, we can make better decisions, um, which can help advance Vision Zero. This is um, a snapshot of Transbase. This is a, a tool developed by the Department of Public Health that is a, an uber geospatial database, but essentially it has over 200 variables that you can map immediately. Um, the variables include environmental data, injury data, uh, and allows our, our city partners to really be able to drill down and ask questions if they are curious about um, how many children were injured within two miles of schools um, inside of a, a crosswalk. You can you can do that level of um, queries in this in this database. Um, and so our plan is to once this um, surveillance system. And linkage is complete. We want it to put what what we can on Transbase and make it um, make it available to the public and to our city partners. Uh, future research and um, research in future directions. Part of the work we've done is is look at. Um, the direct medical costs of traffic injury. We worked with a graduate student this summer who was able to utilize uh, the trauma registry data and quantify the costs of um, traffic injury in San Francisco. And um, the results of that study will be presented at the trauma um, the Western Trauma Association in March, actually. And that looked at uh, three years of data, and it's the first study that actually looks at all all road users. So it, it takes into account motor vehicle occupants, drivers, um, pedestrians, cyclists, and, and motorcyclists. Um, future directions, we see potential opportunities for data collection of crash details at the hospital. As I mentioned previously, one of the data gaps with hospital data is we don't have very much information on what contributed to the crash, what caused it, and where it happened, especially if the person wasn't transported by um, the emergency medical services. So um, thinking about ways that we can fill these data gaps in the future. Um, we're also working on developing a severe injury case definition. So similar to that 
um, traffic fatality map I showed you that is updated on a monthly basis. Um, we, we would like to um, replicate that for severe injuries as a performance metric that we can track um, with Vision Zero moving forward. And then with this robust um, surveillance system, um, we have opportunity to, to do predictive modeling and um, figure out which, which risk factors, environmental and um, demographic, that, that predict injury in the city, which can um, inform our, our traffic safety efforts. So with that, I will open it up to questions. Uh, I, uh, it's a great presentation. I think that, that you made some good observations about the uh, depth and, and uh, usefulness of police reports. I like the idea of correlating with uh, trauma and set of reports of accidents and so forth. Um, I, I'm wondering if, uh, if there's, if, you know, I work with a lot of data, and I wonder if there is any kind of a root cause analysis process that must be inherent in this in this uh, in this process. For example, um, you have data that indicates that there was, for example, a traffic accident. Uh, you have data that indicates uh, some kind of subjective evaluation of the severity of that. Mm -hmm. You may have data from the trauma center that indicates in more detail, more granularity, and accuracy, rather, uh, of, that, of the results of that. But um, where does the evaluation get made about the root cause? And I'll give you an example. I work uh, in the financial district have for 12 years and uh, commute from one of the neighborhoods by either BART or uh, Muni, depending on scheduling, so forth. And I often see at uh, two or three intersections in my walking from the station on Market Street to uh, four, four and a half or five blocks down Sampson Street, northbound on Sampson Street, and I see traffic in the morning and traffic in the evening, automobile traffic in the morning and evening, along with bus traffic and cyclists and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. that, um, has a good deal of tension built into the, the behavior of drivers and pedestrians and cyclists from the standpoint of congestion, uh, routing, uh, lights changing, the uh, uh, parking of, uh, of delivery vehicles in bus zones mm -hmm. and so forth and so on. But I have never in that time seen an enforcement uh, officer in that neighborhood evaluating uh, what could be contributors to an accident? For example, in at five or six o'clock in the evening, as I cross Pine Street and Sansom Street, traffic uh, almost every traffic light has at least one or two automobiles beating the orange, the red light. Sometimes going through a red light mm -hmm. places a number of pedestrians at risk. So I guess my question is, where does that root cause analysis? Just to reiterate your question, um, you're asking about uh, at what point, using this data, would we be conducting some sort of root cause analysis evaluation to actually inform changes that you can physically see on the streets? Um, 
I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think this is the first step in um, gathering this data in into one centralized database. There have been um, efforts with um, the pedestrian safety um, initiative that I mentioned in the timeline um, where the police data was utilized in a project called Walk First, and that kind of gets at what you're, you're talking about where different collision profiles were identified throughout the city. And so um, these collision profiles, whether they were um, collisions that were caused by some left turn violation at unsignalized intersections where there wasn't a high visibility crosswalk or some, you know, there were different um, profiles. But um, engineers would pair that with the most cost-effective um, collision reduction designs or, or factors that they could. And those types of projects with a high incidence of injuries were prioritized through this um, walk-first um, program, and it's still being implemented. But I think it's those types of analyses that are looking at larger s spatial patterns and injuries um, that would be addressing um, broad issues like that instead of like individual level analyzing individual crashes one by one but um, we do work closely with the police department I think there is um, a cultural shift happening at the municipal transportation agency as well I think in the past um, a lot of their work was driven by the loudest people um, and so the people that would call the agency and complain that there are speeders in their neighborhood, they're the people that got the speed humps or they, they would get the resources for enforcement. And at least now with this data-driven approach that Vision Zero is forcing <laughs> on the city or as, because we've adopted it, um, it's, it's making the argument that, no, we actually need to, to divert resources to the high injury network. This is where the data is pointing to where the problems are. Not to say that um, where you're, you're seeing um, dangerous behaviors isn't happening, but, um, but it is a more systematic approach. And I think as we get better and better data, um, we'll be able to do more in more projects like that. Yeah. Any other questions? Um, well, it's it's really important to have the data, and it's really important to use that. But I'm wondering how it gets transferred to um, real life prevention. For example, I mean, there's some things that are so easy that you don't need data for. Mm -hmm. Like just on my drive over here in Douglas, I saw ten bicycles with no lights on the back. No reflectors on the back, mm -hmm. no lights in the front. And so it seems like that would be a pretty easy way to drop down the bicycle injuries and fatalities. Um, you know, another example is, I think it's on Montgomery Street in the financial district. There's a time when all the cars stop and then all the pedestrians can go whatever way they want. And, um, it, you know, that would eliminate a lot of people turning right on the right or green, mm -hmm. or red or green, and hitting pedestrians walking across the street. 
Yeah, so your question is, despite not having the data, aren't there, aren't there things we can implement that we know save lives? And I think um, that is definitely true because we're not the, the inventors of Vision Zero. There's a lot of best practices that we have taken from Sweden and from other countries that have implemented it. Um, but yeah, I think for your specific example about cyclists um, needing lights at night, that is an education component, and um, we do have this task force, and the the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition is part of the task force. It's not really fair to um, advocate for something that doesn't exist. Yeah, I agree. And yeah. And there are intersections um, and um, corridors in the city that just also don't have street lights. And so that's something that that type of environmental data, built environment data, is on Transbase. And so we are mapping those. And those are the types of questions, too, that, that we can run analyses on. Like, are there um, certain nighttime um, injury crashes? Where are those happening? And getting that PUC light data and seeing are there just really quick and effective solutions to those. But it, it is a matter of having having the data in some of the cases and in, in prioritizing these analyses to, to get it on in the ground. Any other questions? Sure. Has ever come up that size of the A pillars, A, B, C pillars in cars, it's the government is required that roofs not collapse if the car goes over. So this pillar is getting larger all the time. My fairly new Honda has two of them. And several times pedestrians have been in that. That blind spot. It's really, really dangerous. So the question was about um, basically vehicle design that hinders visibility while driving. And, you know, one of the challenges with Vision Zero is in engaging the private sector, and that, that is something that is in our next, so our two-year action strategy is sunsetting this year, but we have another two-year action strategy and to, be, to be released in 2017. And engaging the, the private sector, both private sector partners um, within the city who have parking, um, those kind of private partners, but also um, vehicle designers. Um, there's a lot of opportunity. I think there's a lot of large vehicle, um, large vehicle trucks in San Francisco that that could add side guards um, that would prevent cyclists from dying. Essentially, when they get sucked under the the wheel well, this would prevent a cyclist from getting sucked under. Um, I think there's opportunity to shrink large vehicles. That could be something down the line, but I know in, in Europe they they have smaller large vehicles than we do. And I think working with um, auto companies to to increase visibility, to change car design, and to try try to start making some of those safety features like um, the the auto stop when you're following someone too close and some of those features more standardized like airbags and seat bags are now. Leilani, thank you and thank you everyone for attending tonight. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.